Um, I'm going to wrap things up here. Did anyone else want to say anything before we close? I think we're, we've been going for a while. I got, I got a pee. Okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Last week, the Biden administration announced its next big legislative push, $2.3 trillion in spending on infrastructure and jobs. It would be paid for over 15 years by raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. And Democrats are hoping to pass it by sometime this summer. We're gonna discuss what the public thinks of the plan and what the challenges might be in getting it passed. We're also going to take a look at how the Republican Party is reacting to its recent electoral losses. Oftentimes, when parties lose elections, they do some soul searching and try to figure out how to make themselves more appealing to American voters. Democrats did that after 2016. Republicans did that after 2012. It's a process that goes back decades. So are Republicans conducting any 2020 postmortems? And if not, why? Here with me to discuss are senior politics writer Perry Bacon Jr. Hey, Perry. Hi, Galen. Also with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. And managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hey, Galen. So let's begin with infrastructure. Biden's plan, which the administration is calling the American Jobs Plan, includes $621 billion in transportation spending, which makes up 27% of the plan, according to the Washington Post. It also includes things not traditionally thought of as infrastructure, like $400 billion expansion of care services under Medicaid. We'll get into what any sticking points might be, but to kick things off, let's ask one of our favorite questions, which of course is good use of polling or bad use of polling. So Biden and his administration have adopted an idea of bipartisanship that is very polling driven. They say that because their initiatives, most recently infrastructure, have a chunk of Republican and independent support behind them, that they are bipartisan, even though they have not gotten and are unlikely to get any support from Republican lawmakers. So I'm curious what people think. Is this a good or bad use of polling? It's an interesting gambit. I have to say, I think the American public here is a bit smarter that if no Republicans vote in favor, this isn't really bipartisanship, no matter how you spin it. And a Democrats, more so than Republicans, at least according to a January Pew poll, really want bipartisanship. That said, Perry's done a piece looking at the COVID-19 relief bill and what we learned from that and how Biden's moving forward. And you're right, he is pitching himself as unity, does not mean bipartisanship. Infrastructure, you know, historically has been a really popular bill in which both parties, generally speaking, get to find something that they want, some good pork and barrel. It looks like it'll be the case this time around, probably just with Democrats. The conventional wisdom seems to point to this being another example of budget reconciliation conciliation as opposed to a bipartisan bill. And it is popular. It is not as popular as the COVID relief bill, which I do think opens up some potential problems for Biden in the sense that depending on how this plays out in the media, you know, is it, does it become this narrative that it's, oh, it's more than infrastructure. It's remaking the fabric of our society. Or is it, no, we're building a lot of crumbling bridges. We're helping with affordable housing. We're getting people college tuition who need it. I don't think it's as clear cut as COVID-19. And I don't think that they can spin it as bipartisanship if Republicans don't vote for it. So bad use of polling. 
I think it's a bad use of polling, too. I mean, it's good for Biden. He should do whatever he wants to do. So the Republican voters have done two things here. One is apparently in some polls, some Republican voters say, I like the COVID-19 bill. I like the infrastructure bill. The other hand, on the other hand, the Republican voters unanimously voted for Republican members of Congress and Donald Trump, almost unanimously. So it's hard to say which of those actions should we value more, who they voted for or what they said in polls. I think it's sort of obvious to me that it's who they voted for. It's like the polls suggest there's some number of voters who like the COVID-19 bill but also voted for a Republican House candidate. But it doesn't require brain surgery to think that the Republican House candidate was going to vote against the COVID-19 bill when it came through or going to oppose most of Biden's agenda. We just did this whole thing for eight years. My view generally is like, if you're going to say you're going to unify the country eight times in a speech, do that. Otherwise, don't say it, but don't rejigger what unity means after you realize that, you know, like he's saying something that the country is hard to unify. It may be ununifiable, and I sort of feel like lying about it isn't helpful. And that's what I feel like happened on January 20th. I agree that you should look at who voters voted for more than what they tell pollsters in terms of issue positions as like the meaningful indicator of where voters are. But bipartisanship as defined by will the other party vote for your bills, bills the majority party supports and has put forward, is essentially means bipartisanship is not possible. As as Perry put it, unity is not possible. Now, maybe Biden should have said that. Maybe Biden should have said, you know what? Unity, unity is not possible. And instead of saying we need to end this uncivil war, he would have said we need to win this uncivil war. I actually think there's a pretty good argument for that. But knowing that one, as Sarah mentioned, Polls show voters want bipartisanship, whatever that means, including lots of Democrats. And two, the media is obsessed with whether something is bipartisan. And they tend to define whether a presidency is succeeding or not. One, does it accomplish its legislative goals? But two, how much is it doing to win over the opposing party? So as like a political gambit, as a political use of polling, I actually think it's pretty clever by the Biden administration to try at least to redefine bipartisanship in this way, not what will Mitch McConnell get behind, because Mitch McConnell isn't going to get behind anything, but rather what do voters support? And look, with the caveat aside that Perry's right, Republican voters voted for the Republicans who are now opposing everything. With that caveat aside, Biden really has pursued agendas that are really popular across the board, or at the very least, divide Republicans rather than draw unified Republican opposition at the voter level. So I think it's a political good use of polling, if maybe a little bit of a a redefinition. If Biden said my agenda is popular, I think that's supported by evidence and true. I think the unifying and bipartisanship I disagree with. What we've seen is the last few administrations now is like when one party has unified control, House, Senate, presidency, they push things that are going to be more on their side. Then like we had bipartisan bills that passed 
in 2020, last year, uh, on COVID and so on. That was because you had divided government one. Secondly, the Democrats will do things that help their constituents that if, with a Republican president, and the opposite doesn't happen. So I think there is potential bipartisanship in some contexts, but Biden, to me, sort of knew what he was getting into and defined unity in a way that I, I think popular is fine and bipartisan unity is is not, he can say what he wants to say, but it's sort of not ideal in the discourse to me. And that it's not truthful. Yeah, it's, my agenda is popular as a clearly true statement. My agenda is bipartisan as a much more condensed statement. It's an interesting question because I think one thing we saw in the last four years, particularly among Republicans, was they moved away from the fiscal conservatism, right? Like there was a brand of populism that extended to economics within that as well. And was one reason, I think, at least among Republican voters, that the COVID relief bill was so popular. And I think what is interesting about this bill is it's infrastructure. And that historically has not been a contentious type of bill that isn't passed through bipartisan measures. And one thing I just wanted to flag for listeners, because this was a new fact for me in editing a story, was that the last Congress was actually pretty bipartisan, 15 major laws. And now granted, this is categorized in a poli-sci way, but this is like COVID relief bills. This was something to do with climate change. Those were passed through with Republicans and Democrats voting. And I think if there's not even the attempt or effort to try to do that now on something like infrastructure, Biden continuing to signal that as unity, it's not unity. I just think that sets up a problem for him politically. It absolutely does set up a problem for Biden politically, but I also think there's nothing Biden can do about it. It's like going into a basketball game and saying, hey, Philadelphia 76ers, you can only succeed in this game if the New York Knicks try to help you win, right? (laughs) There's no chance of that. The Knicks are going to try to make the Sixers lose, right? Mm -hmm. And so comparing it to the last Congress, when there was a Republican president and divided government, I don't think it's a fair yardstick. I think we have every reason to expect Republicans in Congress are going to oppose everything Biden does. And so if we're going to talk about bipartisanship, I think we need to either not talk about it and acknowledge it's not a thing or, you know, talk about it in this other way. Wait, so you don't think that even if the Biden administration slash Democrats came to Republicans in Congress and said, hey, we want to pass an infrastructure bill, what do you want in it? I think the problem here is that it's associated with tax increases. I think if it was pure like roads and bridges and ports and airports, but that's not what Democrats want anyway. So the reason that there's no bipartisanship is because there isn't common ground on what an infrastructure bill should be. If they just stuck to a very limited scope of infrastructure, I think there would be Republicans who voted for that bill. I disagree with that completely. So do I. I think that would never happen. You don't even think Collins, Murkowski, like the usual suspects. If one Republican counts as bipartisanship, I, I mean, they literally wrote a health care bill, wrote based on what Mitt Romney had previously did, and they acted like it was socialism. So, no, I don't think, okay. I mean, particularly in this environment where it makes Biden look successful. No, I don't think a bill, let's say I mean the bill really small, a 600 
billion dollar bill that was really bipartisan that Biden could say, look, it was bipartisan and it builds roads. That would be great electoral juice for him. I doubt Mitch McConnell would hand him that kind of victory. I don't see any infrastructure bill that would be with really any meaningful spending that Mitch McConnell would sign on to with his members for this reason. We would help Biden electorally too much. Interesting. And then we'd be having a conversation about does one or two cross the aisle votes count as bipartisanship, right. which I and don't it think does. it does. That does, no, right? No, I don't think it does. <laughs> and it does more so than either. the current standard of bipartisanship. Let's paint an ideal of bipartisanship as like the COVID bills, which as Perry said, Democrats are willing to do that. Democrats are willing to give the other party a win if it helps their constituents and they think it's the right thing to do. That doesn't work the other way. So let's define an ideal of bipartisanship as that, as like, significant numbers of members of both parties vote for something and significant numbers of voters from both parties support something. That's the ideal. So yes, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen. But then if it, if I had to choose between significant numbers of voters from both parties support something or Murkowski and Collins vote for something, I think the voters is the more meaningful thing. But under this circumstance, of course, you would have both. Right, right. I also suspect Biden doesn't actually believe this himself. If the infrastructure bills start polling more negatively and have no Republican <laughs> support, will he withdraw the bills or will he change his definition of why they should pass and say, unity and bipartisanship are important, but these are fundamental values. I ran for president. The majority of people voted for me. Like, I don't even think he really believes this stuff. Like, most politicians, at the end of the day, would prefer to get their agenda done than to be bipartisan. I 100%. I think you're right, Perry. 100%. And by the way, that might become a real issue the longer this infrastructure Correct. stuff is yeah. out in the public. Sarah was alluded to that, yeah. But the fact that both sides have been talking about infrastructure for decades and support infrastructure, that has to count for something. That's at least the glean of bipartisanship. I think in all of this, it matters the order in which Biden is going. Biden is proposing the most popular legislation first. And so to Perry's point, he is just proposing more popular stuff and calling it unity or bipartisanship. And he will eventually get to things that he has almost no Republican support for, and then he will have to change his message, presumably. But at least the way that he's conducting his administration so far, it's like, front load it with the popular stuff. That seems to be the strategy. And this is the message surrounding that strategy. We should move on and talk about more of the specifics of infrastructure, but like given that that's his strategy, final score on this, good use of polling or bad use of polling? I would say good for him, but I think bad in a normative sense. Same, yeah. Oh, see, okay. <laughs> I think- <laughs> Mike is good, good. Good political use of polling. Sure. Good normative use of polling. Bad, consistent use of polling, because it definitely is it, <laughs> shifting the goalposts. Okay. We're going to have to create an algorithm <laughs> to give that a score. But so bad use of polling probably wins there. I, I'm for bad if it comes down to it. Yes. Yeah. All right. Majoritarian rules here. Bad use of polling. Let's move on and talk about some of the specifics of the infrastructure proposal and what trying to get it through Congress will look like. We were just talking about the popularity of some of 
Biden's early proposals. And they got their first piece of legislation, the American Rescue Plan, through Congress and signed in just 50 days. Debate within the Democratic Party was minimal and no Republicans voted for it. The Biden administration is now moving on to infrastructure and social welfare. And do we think that this, even though it's popular to some extent, will be more of a challenge to pass than that initial American Rescue Plan? Yes. What I'm hemming and hawing on is at the end of the day, I don't think it will be because the Democrats largely seem to be the ones right now in the stories talking about, I want this in the proposal, I want that in the proposal, and they're going to work it out. I think the risks, though, tie back to how they're choosing to fund it with taxes, and that messaging is going to be beyond what Democrats can control. I think they have the votes in the sense of like budget reconciliation to get it through. It's just not as popular as COVID relief, and I think how this will be messaged, particularly in how it'll be paid for, will overshadow. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying yes. It is going to be harder. It will be harder, but it will happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can already see that on the first bill, everyone was sort of a separate mansion. There were very few people who were being as difficult as possible in terms of Democrats. So you can already see people giving these absolutist demands. The moderates of New York and New Jersey saying, if you don't have repeal, their vision that makes it harder to deduct state and local taxes, we won't vote for it. You've seen people sort of saying, if my thing is not in the bill, I will not vote for it. This bill also has a few more component parts to it. So there's like a lot of things going on here. There's tax policy, there's infrastructure, there's broadband. So I think the bill itself, it's a permanent bill. The last bill was temporary. A lot of the COVID relief bill had stuff in it that was passed in 2020 as well, like the checks. So I think the other bill was like actually more agreed upon in the substance as well. Also, now that most Democrats have, get, you know, they voted for something Biden was for, Biden's first thing is out of the gate. Now members of Congress going to want to throw their elbows around and say, I'm a member of Congress. Why isn't he listening to me? And you're, you're already seeing some of the ego stuff that normally plays out, play out here. And this is bad for Democrats. Another reason, there's a study out that I saw on Twitter. What you find is that voters are turned off by the process of bill passing itself. Endless discussion about horse trading and who likes this and members of Congress feuding each other intrinsically will make this bill more unpopular. It sounds like the Democrats are planning on spending four months passing this bill. They spent about six weeks passing the last one or less than that. So if you're going to spend four months and have every story everywhere being so-and-so, this is going to be unpopular even no matter what the details are. And I think this is kind of a big challenge to them is like, how do you reduce some of the need for Congress members to do this feuding publicly? Voters don't like legislative sausage making, but they do like bipartisanship. So, you know, it's almost like voters don't really know what they want. No, but, We don't talk down to voters yeah. on this podcast, Micah. <laughs> no, but what Perry just mentioned about the timeline here, I think is really important. There was a ticking clock for the COVID bill in that those benefits were running out or were going to run out. And there's not the same ticking clock for this. And so all indications and all reporting are, as as Sarah and Perry said, that this is going to last a few months. And the longer it's out there, history would suggest at least, the more unpopular it will get because voters don't like the sausage making and because there's just more time for opponents to attack it and for things to become unpopular. Now, I will say that like, ultimately I agree with Sarah that I think it's likely to pass, likely through budget reconciliation. Because there aren't mutually exclusive choices in infrastructure in the same way there is in, like, 
healthcare, let's say, or on other issues. And so I do think, for example, like different parts of the Democratic Party care about different things in this law, but they don't care about what the other side cares about that much. So I think Perry mentioned, or at least referred to, you saw these members of Congress from wealthy blue states say, I'm not going to vote for this unless the state and local tax deduction is reinstated. I think progressive members will oppose that in the sense that it's kind of regressive tax-wise, and I don't think they're big fans of it. But I don't think they're going to make their vote contingent on it. No, they'll make sure they get something else. Like, they don't like salt, but they don't care if that means, yeah. They'll get pepper. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Oh, good please, please, yeah, please cut that out. Mike, it with the out. dad jokes this morning. <laughs> please cut that out. No, that's Dana. No, but so, so yeah, so I think that it's easier to please everyone in this way. But yeah, it'll definitely be harder than COVID was. I have a question here, though, because we published an article on the website a little while back by a contributor, Matt Grossman, who basically said it becomes harder to pass and legislation becomes less popular the more contradictions or controversy or tensions over the bill are covered in the media. But we saw right after this was proposed by Biden last week, moderates came out saying they wanted to reinstate salt deductions. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez immediately said that it was not enough and called for $10 trillion in spending. So Democrats are making this a very public fight already. Why are they doing that if we know that having these tensions play out in public will ultimately make it harder maybe to pass this bill or make it less popular when it does pass? Because it's good for the politicians. You know, at the end of the day, AOC needs to be reelected and that's on brand for her. That is what she was elected to do in Congress. And I think that's just the dynamic is like a lot of individual members within Congress. Yes, they're part of the Democratic Party, but at the end of the day, they care a lot about their own political career. It's why Joe Manchin is constantly in the headlines in terms of what he will or won't support. And again, I think that's why at the top here, I was like, oh, it's definitely still going to pass. It will all happen within reason. But I think if they chip away at it a little, that's more leverage, you know, a little bit more bargaining chip because Biden won't want it to drag out for a long time. But there's different incentives, I think, driving someone in Congress versus Biden in the White House. The other thing I would say, Galen, is like there's disagreement and then there's disagreement. You know, if you remember Obamacare, you had members of the Obama administration taking like pretty rough shots at the progressive wing in Congress. I think the reporting suggests that the Biden administration is taking more of a like, yeah, this is part of the process view of things. And so does it help public opinion on the bill? Probably not. I don't think this kind of low level disagreement will have much effect. Now, if it gets amped up a lot, then maybe it has more of an effect. It is not my experience that members of Congress or politicians know much about political science research. So the idea (laughs) that they would know what Matt Grossman or that idea in general is, in my experience, has been they also 
their ideological views and their electoral views line up equally. They, you know, if I told one of them, evidence shows the longer you drag it out, the worse it off, they would say I'm wrong because their motivated reason would take over. I don't think that they actually know or even would change their behavior if told a five-month process is worse for the bill no matter what. Also, there are normative reasons to have a longer process. You might actually want more discussion. Like, should the corporate tax rate be 21, 28, 32, 24? I don't know. But maybe we should have, like, two weeks of hearings about that. But that's going to be slow. I mean, so there are reasons as, as a member right. of the public that I actually would want the bill. Like, I have a, I had a hard time telling you exactly what's in the stimulus bill because it passed really quickly. Obamacare, we all knew. Oh, my God. So much about it because every part of it was debated for four months. Yeah. And this bill is going through... The so like regular, normal committee process, yes, regular committee order, process right? is yeah. good, I think, in a normal yeah. sense. Yeah. So I want to lay down a polling marker here because we are saying that to some extent this could become less popular if things drag on. So Morning Consult with Politico did some polling last week on this, and they found that 54% of Americans support infrastructure improvements that are matched with tax increases. 27% support infrastructure improvements, but without tax increases. And then 6% don't support infrastructure improvements. And then 13% said they didn't know. And when you look at independents and Republicans, 32% of Republicans said they support infrastructure improvements with tax increases. 52% of independents said they support infrastructure improvements with tax increases. So the foundation of this bill is popular. But as we mentioned, it's going to be discussed a lot publicly. You know, what are the sticking points that you think could, if it were to become less popular over the coming months, be those things. So, okay, as you were just saying, Galen, tax hikes are less popular than infrastructure in the abstract. Now, even that, I think, is a little misleading. Like that morning, Constable found that a plurality of Republicans supported infrastructure without any tax hikes, which basically means funding the bill by borrowing which I think you'd have every Republican come out against, and I think you'd see public opinion there change. So I think that's a little misleading. But in general, the funding portion of this bill, how it's funded, is less popular than the spending part of this bill, which is totally normal. And there's a lot of detail, I think, still to come out about exactly how this would be funded. The main two mechanisms we've seen so far are by raising the corporate income tax from 21% to 28%. This basically like halfway reverses what the Trump tax law did, which dropped it from, I think, 34, 35% to 21%. And then the other one is by a tax increase on people making over $400,000. It's a little unclear which of those is more popular or less popular. The morning consult poll you mentioned, Galen, showed 57% of all voters supported a tax increase on those making over 400,000 versus only 47% who said that the hike in the corporate tax rate would make them more likely to support the infrastructure bill. But that's the soft spot here is the funding mechanisms. There are some Democrats who who have come out and said we shouldn't pay for this. It's an investment in the future. It should be funded by borrowing. I don't know whether Republican attacks on the bill for just borrowing a couple trillion dollars would be more potent than Republican attacks on the tax hikes? That's an interesting question, actually. 
But that's the soft spot in this bill politically. I think the tax is actually, if you find tax increases the corporations and the wealthy, I think that's not that unpopular. It's popular, I think. In fact, it's not just not that unpopular. Isn't it actually popular amongst a lot of people? I think it's generally popular, but I haven't read every poll, so I'm just being cautious here. But I think particularly increased taxes of the wealthy are generally pretty popular. So what I think the danger is with the Democrats is a $4 trillion bill, which is what I think we're going to talk about eventually, is inevitably going to include some spending. The Republicans have four months to look for $4 trillion of spending and find something that seems wasteful. I think they'll be pretty effective at that. And I think once Fox News sort of finds whatever is the boondoggle and repeats it daily and so on, that'll mobilize Republican opposition pretty quickly. I think getting Republican opposition to this bill in the 80s by highlighting what is perceived as wasteful spending will be easy, is my guess. And I think that's where the problem, because I mean, the Democrats are clearly, they were the media's calling an infrastructure bill, but in reality, this is like a Green New Deal slash left-wing bill slash infrastructure slash care slash college education. Like, there's going to be a lot of stuff in this bill, some of which is going to seem like not the most urgent of tasks for the country. Yeah. Morning Consult had also done some polling that looked at some of the individual measures. And overall, they're pretty broadly popular with 7 in 10 supporting. And that's stuff like climate change, expanding the country's electrical vehicle charging network, taking other steps to electrify the transportation sector. But then, you know, one thing to note is there are also two provisions to reduce tuition at historically black universities and colleges, right? And even offer free tuition. And you see a drop off among Democrats, but then also really solidified opposition among Republicans. And so to Perry's point, do they zoom in on that? Is that like reparations, which we know that even Democrats sometimes say, oh, that's a little too far for me, actually, in terms of policy. And I do think this bill in particular, in a way that COVID-19 also perhaps that relief bill changed what was or wasn't a stimulus payment in terms of other legislation went through. This extends beyond what we think of infrastructure, right? And so how much do Republicans use that as a talking point? And is that even a problem for Democrats? Or, you know, right now, more funding for affordable housing is really popular. Over 60%, close to 70% want that. And so does that change with messaging? I do think Perry and Sarah are right that the specific spending in this bill will be the soft spot. I do think as the details of the funding mechanisms come out and we sort of get more granular than just like raising the corporate tax rate, taxes on the rich, I think there could be some detail there that is harder for Democrats to sell. What is the rich? How far down does that income bracket go, et cetera? The other thing I would just say, though, on the attacks on this bill that I've seen so far which are along the lines that Perry and Sarah are describing that are just like, this is a democratic wish list. Some have been more effective than others is maybe the way I would put it. I saw one member of Congress make this argument that this isn't really about infrastructure. And then they cited the like money that's earmarked for electric car charging stations. That kind of does seem like infrastructure to me. There are parts of this that, that seem less like infrastructure, maybe the home care stuff, right? Like trying to raise the wage of people who do in-home elderly care. That's not exactly roads and bridges. I also, though, think that Democrats have an argument to make about that's 
there's like a real a compelling argument that that is infrastructure. That's the human infrastructure you need. Right. To be clear, Biden's calling this the American jobs plan. And so his answer to that is also just going to be that that's a large part of the American economy. And we need to like create those jobs and pay those jobs better so that people can go out and work because their family members are taken care of. I will say that on this question, I think this is going to be a big debate. We've already seen it come out. There was an article in the Washington Post from the fact checker that was fact checking the claim from the GOP that only five to seven percent of Biden's plan is for, quote unquote, real infrastructure. And there's a bunch of different items in here. They added various things together. They found that about a quarter was for transportation infrastructure. You know, the single biggest item in here, like loan item, is that $400 billion for, you know, expanding care under Medicaid. So, you know, if folks want to dig through all of the different line items and see what percent is for what, I would suggest that folks go look at that article in the Washington Post. But yeah, I think there are different ways that you add it up. And, and so far, it looks like if you only consider, quote unquote, real infrastructure to be roads, bridges, ports, airports, things like that, then it is about a quarter of this bill. One question I have here, and this gets at like a broader maybe realignment or tension within American politics right now, is that historically we would think of business interests being at odds with the Democratic Party and their attempts to raise corporate taxes. Because what we see happening right now is I think Joe Biden and Democrats have in mind that there are two different bills that they're going to propose. This first one is the American Jobs Plan, which is more infrastructure spending, and they're going to raise the corporate tax rate in order to pay for that. There's probably another bill that's coming down the pike, which is more focused on social welfare spending, healthcare, and things like that. And they would plan to raise taxes on the wealthy in order to fund that. There might be some push to try to combine those two bills, but I think for now they're trying to keep them separate. So in this most immediate bill, the American Jobs Plan, we see, you know, the corporate tax rate being proposed that it's raised from 21% to 28%. Are corporations going to, like, come out strongly against this because they don't want to see their taxes raised? Or has some of the realignments that we've seen in American politics, are they changing the calculus for business interests like the Chamber of Commerce or others to make them more aligned with Democrats and not really want to fight publicly with them? So my impression is they're going to try to kill it quietly. So 10 years ago, the corporatists may have been more anti-democratic party and really tried to publicly kill it. My sense is, in part because the democratic coalition is sort of, there's more suburban Democrats who represent upper income areas. The Democrats who are upset about SALT those same people will figure out a way probably to oppose a corporate tax increase or to shrink it from 28 to 24. So I think it might actually be not that easy and not require the business media to do much to sort of fight that. Because as you say, I think the Democrats are closer to the business community than they were 15 years ago. The business community, I think, is further from the Republican Party right now because of issues like the Georgia voting law and so on. Yeah. I mean, there's been so much uncertainty in the last four years, which is always tough and hard for businesses. But there does seem to be some reporting at this point that, okay, the business community might take more of a hike in taxes, you know, for a more predictable stance on things like trade and tariffs. The Times had a piece on that. And they also highlighted that Biden's approach to immigration will be better for businesses because in a global economy, which is what we use in, you can't always put America first and prevent immigrant labor from coming to the country for jobs, particularly in the tech industry. 
And so there's been some reporting to that, but I have to agree that Perry's right in the sense that they're going to be pressuring behind the scenes. I don't think it's going to be this big active push. Maybe in a few months it will be. At least at this stage it won't be. And I do think, you know, in the same way you saw moderate Democrats pushing back on SALT, they'll also be pushing if the individual tax rate on those making 400000 or more becomes too onerous. So you'll see a subtle pushing in that regard. Yeah, there was this article that I think Sarah was referencing that was like, corporate America is torn because they like Biden's more predictable governing style, but obviously they don't want their tax rates raised. It's not like Biden is saying, hey, if you don't support this infrastructure bill, I'm going to start behaving like Trump was. So corporate America can get both. They can get both the more predictable government they already have, the immigration policy they want, the trade policy they want, and they can try to kill this corporate tax hike. Is there maybe a little, do they want to be less open about it? Yeah, maybe, because I think there's more risk to them in being associated with the Republican Party these days. But I still think the Sarah and Perry are right. They're going to fight a raise in taxes. Under the Obama administration, Democrats really worked hard, especially with the ACA, to match dollar of spending to dollar of taxes raised. In this initial plan, they are trying to go that route, you know, paying for eight years of spending with 15 years of tax increases. But it seems like long term, when they include changes in healthcare spending and social welfare more broadly, that they don't actually want to cover it dollar for dollar. Why is that? What has changed that that's no longer a priority for Democrats in the way that it was under the Obama administration? I think they've seen that, one, like Republicans have been so hypocritic about the evils of and dangers of deficit spending and amassing debt that I think Democrats think there's kind of less political risk in those attacks being leveled against them. I think there's also genuinely been a shift in like the wonk policy wing of the Democratic Party and how they view deficit spending, where there's just less fear of hyperinflation and that kind of thing. So the COVID relief bill was not paid for, right? Not paid for. It was paid for, but through bonds. I do wonder, would this bill, would the infrastructure bill, be easier to pass if they didn't try to pay for any of it with anything but deficit spending? Yes, it would be easier to pass because, I mean, this is one of these interesting things as Galen was hinting at earlier. Increasing taxes on the rich is actually incredibly popular. If, depending on how you define it, like the wealth tax is quite popular. They're not doing that. The reason tax rates on the wealthy are not included is because the wealthy have a lot of power to block, you know, campaign donations, backroom doors, so on. But in reality, if you look purely at the polling, the deficit doesn't matter. People just want to screw the rich and not just the Democrats. And yeah. so in reality, if you want to make a bill more popular, you should figure out how do you tax Bloomberg, Soros, all the rich people of every party, and that would actually be popular. And if Biden went on and sold that, that would be something that would be good politically in terms of popularity. It might not be good in that Bloomberg might take away his donations to the Democratic Party, and that's a different question. But in terms of raw voters, I think voters don't care about deficits. They do hate the rich. I was going to say, I think given that the COVID stimulus bill did increase the deficit so much that if Democrats didn't make any attempt to try to 
pay for it in some measure, that would be another talking point. There's already talking points about like inflation this year could be catastrophic. I realize though that I think Mike is right, that the wonk wing within the Democratic Party has changed their tune a bit on that front because there's this idea that Democrats didn't do enough in 08 for economic recovery then. And I think the stance has been, well, we had to do more this time around. So spending up the deficit wasn't the issue, as you both said. But I think in particular with infrastructure too, if the numbers don't exactly add up, there will be this moral argument that our bridges are crumbling, our roads are in vast disrepair. And it's been ages since there has been a federal government bill for infrastructure funding. And I think they want to match it dollar for dollar because the deficit is really high right now. But to your broader point, I don't think that that is the end all that it once was in politics. All right. Well, we'll see how this debate plays out. But let's move on and talk about the GOP 2020 autopsy or lack thereof. But first, shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As I mentioned at the top, it is a long American tradition for a losing political party to do some soul searching after an election loss and try to readjust its messages and policies in order to be more appealing to voters in the next election. While some GOP leaders talked about a new direction for the party after January 6th, the talk has mostly died down. And if it is happening, it's mostly out of public view. Perry recently reported on why the GOP doesn't seem to be undertaking a traditional autopsy post-2020. You can find his piece on the 538 website. I want to dig into some of those reasons here. So, Perry, just to kick us off here, what does the traditional post-election autopsy usually look like? So there's been a lot of different forms of this. I think the most memorable was after the 2012 election. The Republicans literally wrote a document that became known as the autopsy. It laid out in detail, here's why we lost. We need to do more appealing to female voters, people of color in particular. So you had, that's the sort of most formal thing that happened. But after 2016, you had a lot of public discussion, a lot of talk about Democrats are too focused on racial and gender issues from the center part of the party. The left said we're not, the Democratic Party is not populist enough. All parts of the party said that we should not make Hillary Clinton just for, you know, without any real primary. And even going back to like 1988, you had, after that loss, you had a real formal discussion among Democrats that resulted in a sort of move to the center, the new Democratic movement. Bill Clinton was more moderate than Michael Dukakis had been. So you have a lot of different forms of that. But in general, 
First, what happens is a really broad public discussion that usually involves trashing the nominee who lost in great detail. Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton could tell you that they were described in unflattering terms of people in their own party who in November were like, you're a great candidate. And by December or even November, you know, a week later, were saying you were the worst candidate ever. How dare we nominate you? You were done to us, basically. And Trump is not getting that treatment this time. Yeah. I mean, to what extent do you see a public debate about the direction of the Republican Party happening? I don't see one at all. In fact, there was an autopsy last week that was put out. Two high-level Latino Democratic strategists released the autopsy about why the Democratic Party, which, as you remember, won the House, Senate, and the presidency, while losing among Latinos a little bit, losing some ground, but they won the Latino vote, too, overall. But, yeah, Democrats are studying the Latino issue very carefully and, like, publicly and debating it publicly. I don't see much discussion. There are, I'm not saying there are no Republicans. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, there are certainly a few Republicans, but there's not, like, a party-wide formal discussion, because if you had that, you'd not be able to say, here are the Republicans who are saying Trump blew it. Here's the criticism of Trump's campaign team. I'm not seeing a lot of that. After 2016, I read a lot of criticism. A lot of Democrats I knew were naming Robbie Mook individually. He was Clinton's campaign manager. There was a lot of criticism of people on Hillary Clinton's staff and Hillary Clinton herself and, and even Barack Obama to some extent. And you almost have none of that real score settling this time. The other thing an autopsy, a real autopsy, would require is acknowledging that you lost. That's true. That's um, a great point. And, and a huge chunk of the party, the majority of the party, does not want to do that. Slash doesn't believe that it lost fairly. No, I'm not sure that's true. The people doing the, uh, it wouldn't be voters doing the autopsy, right? right? Maybe some voters would, particularly excited about politics, would do autopsies for, for each party. But it, it would be party elites, right? And the party elites who are unwilling to acknowledge that Biden won, I do think know better, maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, I keep thinking back to CPAC in February, which we've talked about it a lot. It's not necessarily the most representative conference of where the Republican Party is. Its straw poll in the past has been horribly unpredictive. But it encapsulated what we're all talking about really well. You know, Trump was the keynote speaker. Everyone else who spoke praised him. There was a golden statue of him. And there weren't any dissenting opinions, either because they weren't invited or because they declined to speak. And when they were mentioned, they were booed. And so I do think there's this open question of, will Trump himself be the leader of the party moving forward? And I think that's much more debatable. But his ideas and his approach to politics, that's not going anywhere. You know, 95% who attended that conference said, I liked President Trump's agenda. And that is why there is no autopsy report. I just think so much of this comes down to the GOP's structural electoral advantages in the Senate, in the House, in the Electoral College, in many state legislatures. Because what it means is there's just a huge disconnect between popular will and the forces that are exerted on Republican politicians. So you can describe in this piece Perry wrote that I edited, you can describe the 2018 to 2020 cycle as absolutely ruinous for Republicans. Republicans were swept out of power. They lost the White House, the House, the Senate. They've won the popular vote for the presidency one time in the last 
however many years, multiple decades. Since 1988. Since 1988. Or you can say, well, Republicans were about a couple hundred thousand out of millions cast votes away from Trump squeaking out electoral college victory and staying in the White House. You move a couple percentage points in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. This is what Perry wrote about. And if David Perdue won about, I think it's like 60,000 more votes in the Georgia runoff, then Republicans keep the Senate. Not to mention they made a bunch of state legislative gains. And the reason that that electoral picture is so confusing, Trump can come so close to winning the White House while losing the popular vote by 7 million votes, is that the GOP has these structural advantages, which essentially make them mostly immune from the popular will and make them beholden to a much, an electorate that looks much different than the country overall. I think that's why you get a lot of Republicans looking around, not only refusing to acknowledge reality that Trump lost, but essentially saying everything's fine because for them, most of them, it is. Okay, I take your point, Micah. But also, like, when you look at the 2016 election, that was an extremely close election where Hillary Clinton was tens of thousands of votes away from winning. And there was mayhem within the Democratic Party. And there was a lot of soul searching about what to do. So there has to be another reason beyond just like, it was close, they almost won. And Perry, you go through some of the rationales for why there isn't an autopsy happening within the Republican Party right now. Can you lay out like some of those other ideas? Because I I take your point, Mike, and it's absolutely true from a structural perspective, but there are more forces at play, I think, too, within the Republican Party that you can attribute to why this autopsy isn't happening. So a couple of things that I wrote about was, so one was like, if you remember right after January 6th, McConnell was very clearly like, we need to get rid of Trump and we're tired of him. And he was sort of signaling that. But then you saw these here in Kentucky and a bunch of other states, there were these censure resolutions that were passed. Like the, in other words, that said that attacked Republicans who voted for impeachment or hinted they would or anything. And one of my cases is like, basically, I view politics as sort of the elite driven in some ways. And so at the McConnell level, McCarthy was open to moving too. But the state Republican parties, the local activists, the groups like the Heritage Foundation, the Heritage Action, Club for Growth, Fox News, that group of people that are sort of between McConnell and the rank and file voters, those people are really opposed to change. Like the Christian conservatives know their agenda is unpopular, banning abortion, getting rid of Roe v. Wade. They're not changing their agenda because they believe in it deeply. So for certain parts of the Republican Party, the question is, do I change my views to help us win? Or are these views so fundamental to me and the way I see the world? Are we in an existential crisis where moving left means that I'm going to let the liberals take over the country? And they're opposed to that. And they'd rather push a risky strategy that might not win than a strategy that would be more electoral viable that require a lot of compromises. Like one, you know, the Republican Party right now is fighting what they view as a sort of demographic cultural change that they are resistant to, and they'd rather go down fighting than to sort of change over. So that's the broader part one I made. The second was you can't have an autopsy if you can't criticize Trump, and they can't criticize Trump because he'll primary them. So that's a big part of it. Like as you're seeing Trump is primarying people already. So the third part is they almost won. 
I noted that Republican voters are not really clamoring for changes. And I think that's part of it. You look at the polling, you look at, you know, Iowa. Like if you had done a poll of Democrats in 2017, asked them, do you want Hillary as the nominee? I don't think that would have been a very popular idea versus a lot of Republicans are for Trump being the nominee, meaning they don't want him to change. And the last thing is, when I mentioned previous parties, you had the DLC in the 1980s pushing the Democrats to the center. You had George W. Bush, who was in the early in the late 90s, saying the Republicans should be compassionate conservatives, which implied that maybe Newt Gingrich was not compassionate. So you had that force. And to me, it would be hard to say, who are the centrist Republicans? Where are they meeting? What is their organization? Like To me, there's about a third of the Republican voters, look at the polls, who want to move on from Trumpism. So there is a core Republican voter who wants to move on from Trumpism. It's not clear to me there's any institution in the party that's sort of galvanizing those people the way you had like like you had a big group of electability Democrats who were saying, no, no, the left is going too far. I don't know where the anti-Trump Republicans are really organizing themselves. The other thing I would just add, and it's the difference, I know, as Galen said, that, you know, Clinton came close to winning in 2016. But the difference is Republicans have the advantage. So the onus was on Democrats. Democrats had to do something to overcome that disadvantage. Republicans don't really have to do anything. That's an exaggeration. But like, do you get what I mean? Like, Republicans have the advantage. So the few efforts at like, what's the future of the party that you have seen are largely doubling and tripling down on Trumpism. You saw that Republican study committee come out with basically a plan that was like, the Republican party should try to make itself known as the workers party. And that was really explicitly a saying, we need to double down on Trumpism and expand on it because that coalition non-college whites in particular, non-college educated white voters, is what gives them those structural advantages, particularly in the in the electoral college. So there's a big difference between having a five-point head start just in terms of the incentives it sets up. Perry hit on something interesting where there was that short-lived period, particularly right after the insurrection at the Capitol, where, yeah, someone like McConnell was like, this is a step too far. 10 Republicans in the House ultimately voted for impeachment, which is not much, but is the most within a House impeachment vote. But then they were so publicly rebuked at the state and local level that that discussion just kind of died down. Like Liz Cheney, her position within House leadership had to be voted on. There were members that wanted to kick her out for that. And what's interesting to me about that disconnect is the party seems to be grappling with this idea of, I do think there's a faction who's like, I'm done with Trump. But what the party is not done with is what his politics represented. This idea of like, he fought for us. This idea that, yeah, can they be the workers party? You know, they were small gains overall and we shouldn't read that much into them. But they did do better among non-white voters without a college degree in 2020. And yes, Democrats are now studying in particular what went wrong with Hispanic voters that fit that bill. But I think Republicans, it's interesting. They're in this tenuous situation where Democrats 
in 2016 had no problem saying, okay, Clinton, let's rethink it. She was unpopular. They're not doing that here in 2021, talking about Trump. But that dynamic seems to be embedded in some of these conversations around Trumpism. What does the party mean? And they're just not having them openly, I would say. There are two things that are changing that are worth noting. You know, we talked about this in a podcast with you and I, Galen, the sort of cancel culture, like everything is canceled. Like that phrase is used by every Republican constantly now. So they definitely figured out woke and cancel culture are good words to use in terms of that. So I think that's one thing. And I think that just watching Fox News and like in what they're saying, there's clearly an effort to promote new people. DeSantis, Christy Nome, Reg Abbott. I think no one on Fox News is going to say we need a different candidate next time because you can't say that because the the audience loves Trump. But there's clearly an attempt to suggest there are other Trump-like people who are not Trump that we can have as our candidate in 2024. Yeah, I think that there is a little bit of an idea here within the Republican Party that like, okay, well, like Trumpism might not have actually been that bad of an electoral strategy, but Trump kind of got in his own way because he was such an eccentric person and he was so controversial. So they want to give the Trumpism without Trump a try before they truly change course. The other thing I wanted to bring up here, which gets beyond maybe just the structural advantages that Republicans have, when preparing for this segment, I was looking through political science papers trying to find research on when political parties change and why. And there was a study actually done looking at European political parties back in 2013. So this is well before any of this was even relevant. And they found that leadership-dominated parties are far more likely to change their policies and messaging after election than activist-dominated parties. And I think this gets somewhat at the difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party right now in that the Democratic Party is relatively top-down. Like, leadership and the establishment within the party has a lot of power, And within the Republican Party, that's not the case. As you all mentioned, Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney didn't have the force of leadership to be able to redirect the party post-January 6th because the activists prevent them from doing so. And so I think what we see here is, is yes, these electoral structural advantages, is yes, the idea that Trumpism maybe did have some electoral advantages, but also fundamentally different parties. It's a really good point, Gail, and a really interesting point. What I was actually going to ask is, You know, in that Republican study committee memo that was like recommending let's become the workers party, it actually seemed like relatively smart electorally to me. Now, you'd have to ignore some policy disconnects in terms of like the Republican platform and becoming the workers party, in particular, their positions in terms of corporations and taxes and their positions regarding people of color. You know, lots of people of color are working class. So you kind of can't be the white identity party and be the workers party. That seems somewhat mutually exclusive, at least if you're like judging things on the merits. But if they're trying to become like white populist party or like a white, like a white workers party, there are a couple lines in there basically about Corporate America has like never been so soured on the Republican Party, right? And that's because of the insurrection. And that's because of corporate America, lots of corporate America at least, has had to get its act together or tried to get its act together or start to get its act together on issues of race and diversity and inclusion. Their employees are are demanding it, right? You saw an effort in that Republican study committee memo to essentially turn that to the GOP's advantage and to say, 
the Democrats are the corporate party. See, these corporations are trying to get you to live your life a different way and and all these things. And that seemed, at, at least electorally, pretty clever to me, actually. Yes. I think that particularly having watched how they're handling MLB, you know, yeah. the baseball uh, all-star game has been moved from Georgia because the MLB objected to the voting law there. Yes. Corporations or in the Republican words, too woke. And I think there is something to corporate, as Mike is saying, corporations are sensitive to the democratic arguments on race and gender issues. So corporations are not overly popular with people in the first place. And so positioning yourself as a sort of not as corporate tied party is probably smart. I think then it gets into the economic issues. What is that agenda? But I, I don't know the answer to that. But I think, yes, in general, saying you're for the working class and you're against woke and you're against cancel culture. I don't know what those count as a rebrand, but I think those are smart things to say. And if they're a linguistic rebrand, those are useful ideas themselves. Yeah. Interesting. Part of it is they're having a bit of an autopsy. They can't name an autopsy, right? It's like the Trump problem means they actually, if the Republican study committee or the RNC said we're having an autopsy to diagnose why we screwed up in 2020, that would freak Trump out and then it would go nowhere. But they're, So it's possible that they're doing more stuff that is like harder to see, that there's an autopsy happening. I don't think so. You don't think so? I think there might be more of this than I can see because the autopsy can't happen in public. I agree with that. And I think the way in which the media wants to cover it is in this sense that, right, there will be a report where it says Trump was a problem for X, Y, Z reasons, because that's how these reports generally go. But for the reasons you say, Perry, like that can't happen, but that doesn't mean that this conversation isn't happening. And if they really can rebrand themselves as the working class party, and I realize, you know, at least among non-college educated white voters, that has been true for several elections now, that would be a big pivot for the party if that is the messaging. Again, what policies that generates? Is there an uneasy coalition? Because as we know, it wasn't just non-college educated white voters who backed Trump. A lot of affluent white business owners also backed Trump. But that pivot is interesting, and I think it is happening. So I do agree that the shift in voting along lines of education that we've seen, coupled with kind of the racial and gender reckonings in corporate America, coupled with the kind of anti-tech backlash in Republican circles, presents an opportunity to the Republican Party to try to brand itself as a more of a workers' party. I agree with that. At some point, they will have to, like, I don't think you can be a workers' party if none of your policies benefit workers. Not none, but you know what I mean. Like, I think Republicans could emphasize policies that support families, which you saw Romney do, for example. And I think they could do that. What I don't buy is that the post-2020 conversations around this are an autopsy in the way that past autopsies have been. I agree. Like, the post-2012 autopsy recommended that Republicans do comprehensive immigration reform. That would have been a big shift in the Republican Party, seems like, anathema now to the GOP, but there is nothing in the current GOP conversations around this that's equivalent to that level of policy shift. This is all about messaging and blah, 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 blah. 
I don't know, though. I think we make too much, to some extent, of these autopsy reports. You know, like one of the big takeaways coming out of 2016 was Clinton shouldn't have done identity politics. But as Perry wrote for the site leading up, Biden did that just fine here in 2020. And I realize that, yes, Biden was an older white man. Clinton was a woman. We can't discount sexism and what that meant and why, you know, Biden as the spokesperson for that makes the message perhaps easier for more Americans to digest. But then did we really understand the root of why Clinton lost in 16? It seems like some of the forces that were at play in 16, at least among the Democratic Party, continued on to 2020. It was just maybe Clinton was flawed as a candidate for XYZ reasons. And so to some extent, I wonder with these autopsy reports, how much of it really does ultimately shape the party moving forward? I mean, the impolite autopsy after 2016 was pick a white guy. So I think that <laughs> yeah. was stated, never really stated explicitly, but that was often what was really happening. That was pretty spot on. And, then, and that's why no one really thinks Beta or O'Rourke should be president except in that context. That's where that all came from. But anyway, um, in terms of the autopsy, so what generated my piece was if you told me on January 7th that the Republicans in Georgia will pass a law that makes it harder to vote and bans giving water to people, I would have been like, eh, they're going to make a little bit of a shift. They're not going to go further. So part of it is like in the context of what's happening in these states I thought there would be a let's be a little less Trumpian, not let's be a little more in a certain way. I think that's kind of what I anticipated. It was like there would be some reckoning in which Nikki Haley-ish... Rep- like, you remember Nikki Haley was being interviewed a lot in that period right after January 7th, in fact. Like there was definitely a sense from Nikki Haley herself that there was more of an opening. And now it seems like we're in the DeSantis bubble. And that goes to the fact that I think everybody thinks that now the party is looking for like, Trumpism without Trump as opposed to something different. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like the couple weeks that we saw after January 6th were, I mean, Nikki Haley even had some tough words when she addressed the RNC committee meeting where they were voting for future party leadership. And that has pretty much disappeared. So we will see to what extent any of that reemerges and we'll be watching the Republican Party for the next two and four years. So this conversation will not go away. But that's it for this conversation today. So thank you, Sarah, Perry, and Micah. Thank you. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. I think I won that conversation, just for the record. Obviously. <laughs> Michael, it's not a competition. We're here for the listeners. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.